That's okay. That's all right. That's okay. You were thinking about poetry, right? Yay! We're reciting Kubla just always have that ready as an answer. I do. You go far in world. <laughs> you really were, yeah. Okay, good. Um, okay, I know Tony's not coming. He's sick. And uh, gosh, I wonder if Gabriel is coming. I looked at lots of the Oh, they tell you he's in the class on latte? Yeah. They do. They're not supposed to do that. Yeah, I was surprised too. I think yesterday was was, or, yeah, I think Last yesterday was the drop deadline. Yeah. So um, when I was an undergraduate, there was a guy who came from Germany to teach a course on the history of science, and um, he was a really famous person um, in Germany, um, and he really knew. German ways, lots of really interesting facts about the history of science. Um, so they, and they thought he's really famous. They gave him a large lecture hall to teach it. Uh, three people took the class, but he was from Germany, so he lectured. Um, and he would come in, and there were three people sitting there, and he would lecture for an hour. Um, and there was one kid, but there were, in fact, not three people sitting there. There were two people sitting there. Um, because there was one kid who never came to class. And um, finally, at the end of the semester, he came on the last day of class. And he goes up to the guy after class, after he finishes his lecture. And he says, um, I just want to know what I should really be reading. Because i got to tell you, Herr Doctor, I'm really shitting bricks about this exam. So um, I don't know what happened to him. Um, all right. Uh, Hyperion, what do you all think? You can just say Coleridge, really. Coleridge. It's not. <laughs> it just isn't. Uh, did you read it? Did you like it? Yes and yes. No and yes. No, I didn't read it, but yes, I liked it. That's a general student. Um, if, you, if you were to decode responses in a whole lot of English classes, that's what they would be. Um, I admit not to having read it, but since you assigned it, I liked it. Um, so did you like it? That's the easy answer. No, you didn't. It's because you read it. How come? I don't know. It just felt very, like, very, I don't know. The first word that comes to mind is long, but it's not, it wasn't the <laughs> length. It was just that the descriptions and, like, all the language was very, like, long and drawn out. Yeah. Um, compare it to the Eve of St. Agnes? Yeah. Uh, in the same way, long and drawn out, like the Eve of St. Agnes? Or did you feel that the Eve of St. Agnes worked better? I like the Eve of St. Agnes better. Because there's sex in it. No. No, there was no I mean, sex is always interesting. I mean, something <laughs> happens. That's what, I mean, what's Don Juan about, right? Um, <clears throat> here, nothing really happens in the Eve of St. Agnes. The thing that we look, at least for romantic stories, to happen does happen. Um, did other people feel that way? I mean, on the one hand, the descriptions are not that different. Um, you get a whole lot of what I was um, describing as synesthesia in Hyperion. And, yeah? I found myself having a hard time remembering what he was talking about. <laughs> um, like, he would mention something and then go on describing it for a while. And then I would, for some reason, have, I don't know if I was just, like, not focusing really well, but 
Mm-hmm. It was really difficult for me to follow what exactly people are supposed to be talking about. I don't know why. Um, okay, that's interesting. Um, I think that's, I mean, I, I, I mean it by saying that's interesting, not, oh, that's interesting. How long have you felt that way? Um, no, it is interesting. Um, the question of what description is doing in Keats. You know, a whole lot of romantic poetry is descriptive poetry. Um, and, um, you know, we've seen that, that's obviously true in Wordsworth. We've seen it um, in Byron, especially in Child Harold, but to a large extent in Don Juan. In Don Juan, the descriptions um, get funny very quickly because Byron knows how description can become something that it's hard to focus on. Um, the Witch of Atlas is all description. Um, the entire poem, practically nothing happens except that she moves into more and more gorgeous worlds. Alaster is practically all description. It's not random description. It's description which is pointed or focused towards something, um, towards a revelation or towards a way of thinking or looking at the world. Mont Blanc would be a perfect example of that. <clears throat> um, you could even say that in some sense about Prometheus Unbound, that stuff is happening, but the only way we know what's happening is that people are describing how they feel or what they're seeing or um, what's happening to the outside world or what's happening to Jupiter um, and so forth. Um, the Eve of St. Agnes is all description. And um, if the Eve of St. Agnes, I really didn't mean this facetiously, if the Eve of St. Agnes is more interesting, I actually love Hyperion, and Keats rewrote it, tried to rewrite it. He abandoned it, which is why it stops in mid-sentence. Um, he then tried to rewrite it um, a few months later as a new poem called The Fall of Hyperion. And what you'll see when you read that, um, The Fall of Hyperion is really a great poem. Um, also abandoned. But what you'll see when you read it is that it gives a kind of frame to Hyperion, and the frame is really, really interesting. Um, Keats, or the, or the um, <coughs> excuse me, narrator of that poem, talks about himself um, and the vision of Hyperion that he's having and why he's having it. So that's something um, that I hope you'll like better. Um, but even in the Eve of St. Agnes, sex is turned into description. That is, he melts into her dream. It's, it's like a throb, the music is like, like the yearning of a god in pain. It's like, um, the pleasure is like a throbbing star. Um, the synesthesia, you could say, works um, in both ways as for, for a reader, which is that description can itself start feeling so sensual that Keats can use it to say that Porphyro and Madeline are having sex. He can do that simply by description. Um, and when the description is powerful enough that you realize that they're having sex, the description is good. You feel like description is doing the work of storytelling. But I think what you're saying, and maybe what you're, what you're feeling, um, is that in Hyperion, the description isn't doing the work of storytelling. It's not quite working. You d the story keeps not quite taking off, keeps not quite sparking. Um, Keats explicitly thought of the Hyperion poems as being Miltonic. Um, and he abandoned them because he said they were too Miltonic. Um, what he, the, his actual line, um, and I assume you guys are reading the letters, which, will, which we actually will look at, which are on the syllabus. 
Um, they're not that, what is there, about 30 pages of letters in your edition. And they're great. Um, I mean, I hope they're... They're good. Yeah, I and did, they're narrative. I did read them. Yeah, okay, good. And there's, and there's storytelling in them. Yes. He does stuff. Um, but he also says really interesting things about poetry. Um, so, but um, what he says in the letters is he abandoned Hyperion because it had too much Miltonic inversion in it. And there he's talking explicitly about style, um, about the way Mil Milton wrote in a kind of Latinate um, word order, Latinate diction, um, putting adjectives after nouns. That's an example of Miltonic inversion. Or um, putting uh, verbs before subjects. Where the dead leaf fell, there did it rest. Instead of um, the dead leaf rested where it fell. That's, um, I'm quoting a line from Hyperion, from the very beginning of Hyperion, where the dead leaf fell, there did it rest. You know, that's fine as English, but it really is poetic English. And what makes it poetic English is that there's an inversion of the usual way we put subjects and objects. Inverted is the way we normally put subject and objects. See how that sentence sounds a little weird? That's what Keats is doing. Um, and he doesn't want that. He wants to quote from the letters, one of the letters he says, if poetry um, does not come like leaves to a tree, it had better not come at all. And um, so he's feeling that he's forcing it a little bit um, in the Hyperion poems. Um, but as far as the description in those poems go, um, goes, I think the way to understand it is, first of all, you should know what the plot is or would have been. Um, and if you read the head note, you will. But basically, the mythology is that, do people know about this, about um, uh, the birth of Saturn, um, who is also the figure, who is, who is then overthrown by Zeus? Um, Saturn or Kronos, overthrown by Zeus. Saturn has himself <coughs> overthrown his own father in this poem called um, Coelus or Coelus, that is um, heaven itself. Do people know this mythology? Can you say what it is? Um, uh, like the Saturn mm -hmm. under Uranus. Mm -hmm. And then, like, um, he had, like, sons and daughters, but he didn't want the children to overthrow him, so he, like, ate them. So he ate them, yeah. And then, like, like gerbils. He ate his young, mm -hmm. the way gerbils do, yeah. He was hidden from him, and yeah. later he grew up and <coughs> Yeah, good. So the story is that Uranus, the, the god of the sky here, as I say, called um, um, Colus, um, is overthrown by his son Saturn because he is so tyrannical. Um, and in Greek, Saturn is called Cronus. There's a pun on that in Prometheus Unbound. Um, where, where Cronus is punned on the idea of chronos as time. Um, and and Demogorgon calls time an envious shadow. We looked at that moment. Um, so um, Uranus or, um, or um, Coelus is um, the, the first of the gods. Um, and he has children, but he destroys them because he's afraid of them. Um, and um, so their mother and one of their, their mother and one of the children, namely Saturn, um, 
agree that the tyrannical father god must be overthrown. Um, so Saturn um, overthrows his father um, and becomes king of the gods in his turn. Um, having become king of the gods, he, as, as you say, um, he doesn't want the same thing happening to him. Um, and this is the oldest Oedipal story, or this is a version of the story that Oedipus is about, which is that children displace parents. Um, that's life. Children do. They displace parents. Um, but having displaced parents and be, now being former children, they're aware that their own children will try to do this to them. And so they take steps. And so he takes steps, and the steps that he takes is every time he has a child, he eats it. Um, and um, Earth, or Gaia, um, is very upset by this, so she gives him a stone wrapped in a blanket, which he, which he swallows instead of... Um, and she hides Zeus. And then Zeus grows up in secret and then um, becomes the cupbearer. This is how Hesiod tells the story. Becomes, disguises himself as a cupbearer to Kronos of Saturn um, and gives him some wine mixed with mustard, which causes Saturn to vomit. Um, and he vomits out all the children that he's eaten. And then they rebel and take over the heavens. Um, and so that's how the Olympian gods have defeated the previous set of gods who are known as the Earthborn gods. So before Zeus, there's Saturn or Kronos. Um, before Apollo, there's Hyperion. Although in some, in some versions of the myth, Hyperion and Apollo are said to be the same person. Um, but the way Keats is doing it is he's saying Hyperion is a titan. Um, uh, Saturn is a titan. And all the titans who we see meeting together in conclave in the Hyperion poem, those are all the figures whom the Olympian gods have displaced, except there's one titan who is still in office, and that is Hyperion. And the god who is going to displace Hyperion is the new sun god. Who is that? Who is the sun god in Greek mythology? Apollo. Apollo. So Apollo is going to displace Hyperion. <coughs> and Apollo is what, where we are in this poem is that Apollo is a young man um, who is only coming to feel that he has a destiny. Um, He's still a youth. He doesn't know about all this. He hasn't been part of the rebellion. But he's beginning to feel that he has this destiny. And um, he is made to feel this way. This is the end of Hyperion, is that one of the titans who is free, whom Zeus hasn't imprisoned, hasn't enchained um, or exiled, but is free to roam the world, um, comes to meet Apollo. Do you remember who that is? He says, where have you been all this time? How did you get here? Did you come over the ocean? Or have you been hidden all my childhood? Do you remember who that was? No. Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory. So we are told in the conclave, when we get the catalog, this is an epic convention, a catalog, a list 
of um, figures. In the Iliad, it's the catalog of ships. In Milton, in Paradise Lost, you'll recall, it's the catalog of fallen angels um, who are all listed in book two. Um, in Hyperion, we get the catalog of titans. But we hear that they're not all there. Some of them are allowed to roam freely on Earth. And one of those is Mnemosyne, who is the goddess or titan or divinity of memory. And she is, do you know who her, who her daughters are in Greek mythology? The daughters of Mnemosyne? Is that the three sisters? No, the graces? No. But it's a good guess. Think of other groups of women. Think of groups of nine women. Muses, yeah. So memory is the mother of the muses. Demosthenes is the mother of the muses. <coughs> Which makes sense, um, because in order to write poetry, this is something Homer himself says, um, you need memory. You need to know your story. You need to be able to tell the story. Um, if you're Homer, you also need to be able to memorize the story because you can't write. Um, but conventionally and mythologically, the muses are the daughters of memory. So Mnemosyne is there, and, and Apollo sees her and says, what's going on? But every time he asks her a question, he knows the answer. And he knows the answer. He says, wait a second, I know your name. I've never met you before, but you're Mnemosyne. And every time he asks her a question, he knows the answer. Why? How does he know her name? How does he know the answer to the questions that he wants to ask her? Yeah, because she's infusing him with memory, because her presence to him infuses him with knowledge, with memory of what the truth is. So here's the god Apollo, and he is going to be the new, new god of the sun. Um, the moon is still the same moon. The moon under um, uh, Mnemosyne and the moon are the two titans who are, who are left free at large. But here's the new god of the sun, Apollo. And he's the archer god. Do, do you know this about Apollo? That Apollo is the god of the sun. He's the sun god. He's also the god of archery, um, which makes sense because the sun darts its beams um, and makes a bow through the sky. There are lots of reasons that you would connect those two things, uh, archery and the sun. Um, for that reason, he's the god of plague, um, if you've read the Iliad. Um, the first thing we hear about Apollo in the Iliad is that he's the god of plague. Why the god of plague? Because plague strikes from afar. That is, people will um, suddenly get the plague. No one knows how, but people will suddenly get the plague, and it's as though they were struck from afar, which is how archers were um, regarded in Homeric times. That is, those who did, who um, you could just be eating your dinner and be dead a second later. Why? Because some sniper with a bow would strike you from afar. So archers were the snipers of Homeric times. They struck from afar, and that's what plague was, was somehow being struck from afar. Um, that image, some of you may know, um, was <coughs> an image that Native Americans also came up with when the Europeans came. Um, Europeans came with diseases that the Native Americans had no um, immunity to. 
and there were suddenly uh, smallpox, especially. Um, there was no smallpox in the New World until Europeans came. Um, and so the Europeans came and there was contact. And then suddenly Native Americans were dying. And the Europeans um, were pretty happy about this because they could take over the land. And in fact, some of them intentionally spread smallpox. Um, but um, the Native Americans described this as invisible bullets. That's the famous phrase that they used, that somehow they were being killed by invisible bullets. That was disease. So you can see how that's a natural way of seeing sudden disease spreading among people if you don't have a germ theory of disease. Where is this coming from? Someone is, someone is struck down with disease, then someone else is struck down with disease, then someone else is struck down with disease. Something is happening. It's, just, it's not just the natural course of events where occasionally people die. Something is, is happening. Lots of people are being killed, but, but we don't see by whom. So for the Greeks, it was by an invisible archer. Since Apollo is the god of archery, it was Apollo. Now, the difference between Hyperion and Apollo for Keats, the crucial difference, is that Apollo is god of yet one more thing that Hyperion is not god of, that Hyperion doesn't even have an idea of. Do you remember what that is? Medicine? Sorry? Medicine, good, no, but no. Um, poetry. So Apollo is the god of poetry. And <coughs> what is happening now is the new Olympian god of the sun is also going to be the god of poetry. So the dream of Apollo, young Apollo, Apollo himself feeling himself infused with all this knowledge, with all this mythology, with all this power. This is the coming of poetry. So the story that Keats is presumably going to tell, the fall of Hyperion doesn't go as far as Hyperion, just so you know. It frames it, um, but Keats gives it up before he gets as far as he's gotten to in Hyperion. But the story that Keats seems to be about to tell is um, the end of the story of the gods displacing the titans, the Greek gods displacing the titans. Yeah? I'm just going to ask this earlier, but it's not really relevant now, but why wasn't the moon replaced by Artemis? I don't know why Keats thought that. This is, you know, and some of this is just Keats making stuff up. I mean, it's mainly Keats making stuff up. Um, but the, the matrix or framework is the battle between the gods and the titans. Um, so I don't actually know if Keats had a source for the idea that it's still the same moon. Um, I suspect he didn't, um, but, it, but it's worth pursuing. Um, but for him, it, I, and it may just be that either he liked the idea of the moon as being this image of um, eternal inconstancy, eternal change. Um, or um, he did have a source for it, but I don't know what the source for it would be. Um, and uh, the idea of mnemosyne as a titan is also a little bit iffy. Um, there's this sort of, in Greek mythology, there's this kind of parallel group of divinities. You know, they're the Olympian gods, the 12 Olympian gods. And they're the titans they displaced. 
But there are also this other, this other group of divinities, like the graces, like the muses, like the fates, who um, seem parallel to them. Now, the Furies, um, for example, who we talked about a little bit when we were talking about Aeschylus, um, and who appear in Prometheus Unbound, the Furies are actually children of Saturn. Um, and No, excuse me, not children of Saturn, children of um, Uranus. And um, their exile from heaven and the, the attempt, their attempted destruction is what turns them into furies. So there are there are traditions where there where you can see all these things branching off from from an original being. But by the time you get to the Greek gods, the graces, the fates, and so on, they're simply a parallel system of divinities who will interact with the Greek gods, um, but they're not as anthropomorphized. Indeed, they're probably hardly anthropomorphized at all compared to the Greek gods. Um, and um, there's a line in Hyperion about Saturn saying, I once um, held fate itself in my hands and could strangle it if I wanted. How did this happen to them? Um, no Greek would imagine that any god, even the king of the gods, had power over fate. Um, that simply fate was is this impersonal agency that um, has nothing to do with um, even interacting with the gods. Fate does what it does, and the gods are as much um, uh, subject to fate as humans are. Um, but it's the fate of the gods to be immortal, so it doesn't matter to them. Um, but that's key. so that's very much Keats um, retelling that sort of story. Um, so <coughs> what this story then is about <coughs> is the end of the war between the Titans and the gods. Um, that's the same story that Milton says he's telling in Paradise Lost. That is, in the first two books of Paradise Lost, um, some of this is clear by allusion, and some of it will be clear later on by <coughs> explicit statement. But the first two books of Paradise Lost, what Milton is saying, um, among many, many, many other things, what Milton is saying is all those Greek and Egyptian, all that Greek and Egyptian mythology is a distortion and a retelling in a distorted form of what really happened, which was the fight between the um, rebel angels and the forces loyal to God. And you'll remember at the end of book one, there's the fall of Mulciber, that is the architect who's built heaven and who now builds pandemonium. And you'll remember that the description of that fall, from dawn he fell, from dawn to dewy eve, and how, they, and how he fell. Sorry, and in Elsonian land, remember that? You didn't know that Osonia was at yeah. And in Osonian land, men called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven, they fabled. From dawn he fell, from dawn to noon, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, until he dropped from the zenith like a falling star onto Lemnos, the Aegean isle. Thus they relate, erring, for he with his rebellious rout fell long. So 
there Milton is translating word for word, but into Miltonic language, three lines of the Iliad. This is the end of Book One of Paradise Lost, and he's and he's translating three lines from the end of Book One of the Iliad. It's structurally in exactly the same place, um, and he's saying what the Greeks and the Romans told was a story of how Vulcan or Mulciber fell from heaven to earth. And that story is based in truth, but they're telling it in an erroneous way. But the truth that it's based on is that he did fall from heaven. He didn't fall to earth, though. He fell to hell. So in Paradise Lost, Milton's catalog of the fallen angels, and he doesn't give us a catalog of the good angels. He only gives us a catalog of the fallen angels. His catalog of the fallen angels, he says, in heaven, though in the book of heaven, their names are quite expunged, raised and blotted out. That is, they become non-persons in heaven. Their names are no longer in the book of life, in the book of heaven. Nor, Milton says, had they yet got among the sons of Eve, got themselves new names. So eventually, when humans come to be born, the fallen angels, whose names are no longer known in heaven, whose names are now quite um, uh, lost, they will get new names among human beings. And he says they didn't have those new names yet, but here's the names they will have. And then he starts listing names from Greek and Roman and Egyptian mythology. Um, so we get Astarte, for example. Uh, we, get, we get Beelzebub, who will be the Lord of the Flies. We get all those figures. And Milton then says um, that the story that Hesiod tells of the titans versus the gods, the earth-born titans versus the heavenly gods, um, where the titans pile mountain upon mountain um, on top of each other to get to heaven and throw mountains at the sky gods, is actually a mistradition, a misremembering, a distortion of what really happened, which was the titans excuse me, which is the rebel angels against the, lo the loyal angels. So here comes Keats to tell the same story that Milton is referring to, but telling it back as the mythological story, not <coughs> as the Christian story. So Milton took a myth and made it Christian. Keats read Milton, thought he was totally great, but didn't want any of that Christian stuff. So he now is going to retell the story as the myth. But it's not just, oh, it's a cool myth, I'm going to retell the story. You know, it's not Keats is doing Game of Thrones. Um, but rather, it's Keats wanting that story to be about the triumph of a certain kind of poetry. So the crucial um, part, and if, if you think of it that way, um, you can also think of it as um, a story about a younger god of poetry, Apollo, 
who is overthrowing the great God of the sun because his youth and his freshness, that is Apollo's youth and freshness, are what the world needs now. That Hyperion is bitter and, um, although astonishingly brilliant, does not have the freshness of the new. And, I mean, astonishingly brilliant in the most literal sense of brilliant. Um, just just um, dazzling. Um, the description of his attempt, and this is another place where you can see the um, interaction between fate or eternal law and um, godlike power. Hyperion can't sleep. Remember that, that section where um, he's, he's haunted by phantoms and mists and ghosts. Not, not the way we are, which for him would be nothing, but proportioned, haunted by omens, proportioned to godlike fear. And he, instead of being able to fall into sleep after um, bringing the sun across the entire sky during the day, um, and into luxury and pleasure, which are the great Keatsian um, experiences. Um, the incense of sacrifice smells and tastes to him like poisonous brass. So Keats is thinking of the taste you get if you put brass in your mouth, you know, put a coin in your mouth, you know that yucky metallic taste. Um, I know you're not supposed to put coins in your mouth because you don't know where they've been. Um, but kids always do. Um, and Hyperion then tries to go charging out of his palace six hours too early. Do you remember that? And he can't because he also is not um, triumphant over time. Um, this is... Uh, This is book one of Hyperion, line, um, let's start at line um, 283. No, let's go a little earlier. I, I know I always say that, but still. Um, so at line 262, um, a mist, <laughs> at line 258, so that we can get to line 262. No, at line one, um, at line 258, from the, 257, and from the mirrored level where he stood, a mist arose as from a scummy marsh. At this, through all his bulk and agony, crept gradual from the feet unto the crown, like a lithe serpent, vast and muscular, making slow way with head and neck convulsed from overstrained might. <coughs> so he's filled with agony like a serpent um, surrounding him and choking him. Um, Keats is very much thinking of Paradise Lost here and the description of the serpent in Book Nine of Paradise Lost. Um, and um, But then Hyperion, having felt this... this um, experience of horror, he's released. So released, 
when he manages to shake off this feeling of serpent coldness strangling him. Released, he fled to the eastern gates, and full six dewy hours before the dawn and season dew should blush, he breathed, he breathed fierce breath against the sleepy portals, cleared them of heavy vapors, burst them wide suddenly on the ocean's chilly streams. The planet orb of fire, whereon he rode each day from east to west, the heavens through, spun round in sable curtaining of clouds. So he opens the portals of the east, and in its stable of clouds um, is the sun itself which is the chariot he will ride through the heavens. Um, and it's ready to go. I mean, this is almost science fiction description of this, this nuclear plasma of a chariot ready to go, spinning round, spinning round in sable curtaining of clouds. You will remember what sable means from Tuesday? Black. Yeah, absolutely black. Um, from, you know it's fur, right? Everyone knows that sable is a kind of fur. No? Um, it's a kind of fur. Um, if you read the great um, Arcady Renko mystery, Gorky Park, or see the not-so-good movie, Gorky Park, um, it's an okay movie. William Hurt is in it. He's always wonderful. He's kind of a jerk in real life, but he's always wonderful. Um, <coughs> so Gorky Park is about... Um, people trying to smuggle out sables from Russia, that is the actual animals, um, <coughs> from Russia, um, which have the best sables in the world and um, which Russia guards zealously or, or jealously. Um, so sable is an animal with absolutely jet black fur. Um, a lot of heraldic terms are the colors of fur. So just when we talked about on a field sable, the letter A, jewels, or the jewels that are thrown on Madeline's breast, jewel, actually, G-U-L-E, is a word that means a red ermine, a kind of ferret-like creature whose color is red. Um, so when you say a field sable, the letter A, jewels, or when you say of Paris and Hamlet um, that... Um, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble, now is total jewels. Um, those are heraldic terms which have to do with the fact that in heraldic shields, does everyone know what a heraldic shield is? It's like the shield of a coat of arms. Um, so in the description, there, there are very, very strict rules for how you describe them. Um, and the description always uses not the names of colors the way we would use the names of colors. You don't say... Um, in a field black, uh, um, um, whatever, an anchor scarlet, um, but you use terms that come from objects, very precious objects in the world. So instead of saying, does anyone know what you would say instead of silver on a shield? What the proper word is? What is it? Yes! How did you know that? Have you seen it? Have you seen descriptions? Yeah, argent. Yeah, which in French means money, but it means money because it means what? Silver. Silver. Good. Yes, it would come full circle. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because it means silver. Um, so you. So it's always 
the colors are never the names of colors through the names of precious objects. Um, so, okay, good. So long footnote on the word sable here. Um, everything is connected to everything else, except those things to which it isn't connected, and it's connected by the strange fact that it's not connected to them. Um, <laughs> all right, so released, he fled to the eastern gates in full six dewy hours before the dawn and season dew should blush. He breathed fierce breath against the sleepy portals, cleared them of heavy vapors, burst them wide, suddenly on the ocean's chilly streams, the planet orb of fire whereon he rode each day from east to west, the heavens through spun round in sable curtain of clouds, not therefore veiled quite blindfold and hid, but ever and anon the glancing sphere circles and arcs and broad belting collier glowed through wrought upon the muffling dark sweet-shaped lightnings from the nadir deep up to the zenith hieroglyphics old which sages and keen-eyed astrologers then, then living on the earth with laboring thought won from the gaze of many centuries now lost save what we find on remnants huge as stone or marble swart their import gone their wisdom long since fled so back then, there were these astrologers who understood these lightnings and drew them onto, um, onto slates and, and tablets and so on, and under, had all sorts of astrological uh, wisdom now lost. What he's talking about is stuff like the Rosetta Stone, stuff that hadn't been decoded yet. Um, as you probably know, um, Linear A still hasn't been decoded. Um, and. Um, people thought that there was all this lost mystical wisdom. Um, and uh, that's what Keats is referring to. This is where it came from. Two wings, he goes on, two wings this orb possessed for glory. Um, so this planet, the sun itself, this, this plasma planet of light had two wings. Two wings this orb possessed for glory. Two fair argent wings, argent meaning... Good. See? Everything's connected. Two fair argent wings ever exalted at the gods' approach. And now from forth the gloom, their plumes immense rose one by one till all outspreaded were, while still the dazzling globe maintained eclipse awaiting for Hyperion's command. So he's describing dawn. He's describing when you can see... Um, the red light of dawn stretched on the horizon before the sun comes up. Those are the two wings he's describing here. You know, it's a, we, we moderns see it much more at sunset than at sunrise because who's up at sunrise? Um, we usually go to bed a little bit before that. Um, but um, the description here, if you think of it, it's, very, it's a very beautiful description of what dawn looks like before the sun actually rises. It's like there are two wings of the sun spread out across the sky but above the sun itself, like the wings of a bird which are higher than the bird's head and body. Um, those are the two wings that you can see in the horizon. And so Hyperion gets the orb to spread its wings like that. Um, two fair argent wings ever exalted at the gods' approach, and now from forth the gloom their plumes immense rose one by one till all outspreaded were, while still the dazzling globe maintained eclipse waiting for Hyperion's command, fain would he have commanded. What does fain mean? 
Sorry? Happy. Happily, yeah, willingly. Um, so I would fain do this means I really do want to do this. Um, fain would he have commanded. Fain took throne and bid the day begin. If but for change he might not. Um, so he wants to start galloping across the sky. He's insomnia. He can't stand being in his palace anymore. He would have done it, but he can't. If but for change he might not know. Though a primeval god, the sacred seasons might not be disturbed. Therefore the operations of the dawn stayed in their birth, even as here tis told. So even though he's a primeval god, he can't go beyond the laws of change and mutability. And it's six hours before the sun can rise. Those silver wings expanded sisterly, eager to sail their orb. The porches wide opened upon the dusk, demesnes of night, or demeans of night, I guess. And the bright titan, frenzied with new woes, unused to bend by hard compulsion, bent his spirit to the sorrow of the time. And all along a dismal rack of clouds upon the boundaries of day and night, he stretched himself in grief and radiance faint. Bare as he lay, the heaven with its stars looked down on him with pity, and the voice of Colas, that is, of um, Uranus, from the universal space thus whispered low and solemn in his ear, um, and tells him that Saturn and everyone else is meeting so that he can go down and meet them. So, um, we get a slight catalog, a partial catalog of the gods at their meeting to whom Saturn is going to come at the beginning of Hyperion 2. Um, and then go to two um, um, let's say like line 168. Um, wondering if we should just skip ahead actually. Now this is this is I think amazing enough that we should look at it. So two one sixty eight. Really two one sixty eight. Um, Saturn has has begun a conversation, a meeting about what to do next. What does this remind you of in Paradise Lost? Yeah, so the rebel angels in book two of Paradise Lost hold a conclave where they decide what should we do now. We've been kicked out of heaven. Here we are in pandemonium, our palace in hell. And what should we do now? And you will remember that this will be on the exam. Um, you will remember the speakers among the fallen angels that Satan says, give advice. And various fallen angels speak, Beelzebub, and Belial, and Mammon, and some say we should go, we should war against heaven again. Some say, look, it could be worse. This really stinks, but it could be worse. And we can't defeat God. This is what Mammon says. We can't defeat God. 
let's quit before things get any worse. Um, and um, Beelzebub says, we can't defeat God by force, but we can defeat, maybe we can defeat him through trickery. So they have a council where they decide what to do about the fact that they've lost the war in heaven, or at least lost the battle in heaven. Is there some way of continuing the war? Should they um, surrender, or should they regroup and attack, or should they engage in guerrilla tactics? That's, a, that's really what the, what the choices are. Um, Milton knew about this because he was part of a civil war that occurred in England, in which, do people know about this? This is something you should know about Milton, that um, in 1642, a civil war broke out in England between the forces of Parliament, who were essentially the forces of a republic, of the idea of a democracy, and the king, who, was, um, who believed and fought for monarchy and absolute rule. And in 1649, that civil war came to an end, at least for a while, with the capture and beheading of the king. So King Charles I was beheaded. Milton was made the equivalent of the Secretary of State, or the Foreign Secretary, for the English Republic um, that had Oliver Cromwell at its head. He was the um, leader of Parliament and he was made the head of the New English Republic, and Milton was made his Latin secretary, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but is, because what that meant was he was responsible for communicating the government's positions to all the other governments in Europe, and the language that was used for these communications was Latin. Um, as the Latin secretary, Milton wrote several books, several book-length works, treatises, defending the trial and execution of the king. Because all the monarchs of Europe were horrified. You know, what if our people do this? Why, who knows, but perhaps in 129 years or so, or I guess 154 years or so, um, the French might behead their king. So um, the monarchs of Europe were very upset about this. And Milton wrote defenses of what the English had done. Um, those, the famous names of those defenses are the first and the second defense of the English people, um, in which Milton justified the trial and execution of the king. Um, so that revolution, that rebellion, um, was very, very important to Milton's own sense of what he was doing. Um, the forces of Parliament defeated in the course of this long civil war that was really tremendously major in the English psyche. They defeated the forces of the king. After 11 years, Cromwell died, and people were as dissatisfied or even more dissatisfied with his government, and he'd sort of made himself into a tyrant, um, or sort of tyrant by the end of things. They were as dissatisfied by his government as they had been by Charles I. Charles's son, Charles II, was off in France in exile, and um, he was then restored to the crown. 
and became king again. Um, and when he became king, Milton was in danger of his life. He could have been executed as a leader of in and of Cromwell's government. He had friends who were friends of Charles's, and they intervened to save him. Um, but after that, he had no more power in the world, no more political power. And so he sat down and wrote Paradise Lost. Um, and Paradise Lost is partly, therefore, you have to see it as coming out of his own experience. Um, the experience of someone who'd been involved, not only in a war, but in rebellion, in a civil war, in a war in which the king is overthrown, but then his son becomes king. So Paradise Lost seems to be about just that issue. There's a rebellion against God. When? When he announces that he has a son, and the son is going to, everyone has to acknowledge his son as Lord. And, there's a, and Satan leads a rebellion against this idea, but the son is finally victorious. Um, Milton was, if you do the parallels, Milton was on the side of the rebels, not the side of the angels in real life. Um, <clears throat> but he knew from guerrilla warfare, he knew from um, defeat, he knew from victory, he knew from accepting defeat, he knew from not accepting defeat. These are all things that were um, very, very close to home because they were occurring at home. They weren't theoretical for Milton, they were real. Um, yeah. Um, he became blind while he was secretary, and his European enemies said, God is punishing you for defending the English. Um, and he wrote back saying, I would rather be blind and tell the truth um, than to be able to see the sewage that you see. Um, these are very, very vicious polemics. Um, this will make a discuss discussion look like um, just the politest thing in the world. Um, no, it's amazing how vicious the polemics are um, and, and how nasty. They, these were not diplomatic diplomats, um, quite the reverse. Um, and that makes them fun to read. I mean, if, they, if, if the writing were diplomatic, we would be bored out of our minds. But the writing is so pungent and so vicious and so beyond anything we could imagine in any official document today. Um, they make North Korea look like it's diplomatic. Um, they make uh, Hugo Chavez seem diplomatic. Remember he went to the UN? The late Hugo Chavez went to the UN and spoke right after President Bush had spoken. Did people know about this? And he got up in the UN and he said, mmm, smells of sulfur. Um, that is the smell of hell, the, sulfur, the sulfurous um, uh, vapors of hell. He could still smell, he said, after um, President Bush was there. So. That was a really shocking thing to say at the UN, um, and typical of Chavez, who is not exactly um, Mr. Um, understatement, President Understatement. But anyhow, they weren't a patch on Milton and his enemies. Um, but he went blind doing that work, and um, he was partly proud of it. Um, so. That conclave in hell, what should we do? That's what Keats is um, imitating here when he has the conclave of the Titans. Um, and they have different advice. Should we fight against Zeus and the Olympian gods, or should we accept 
what's happened to us. So in line 167, book two, line 167, so ended Saturn, he says, um, let's decide what to do. Talks to the god of ocean, Oceanus, who's going to be replaced by Neptune or Poseidon, yeah. Um, again, in some, there's some mythological confusion. Some people think Poseidon is a titan, and some don't. But in Keats's version, he's being replaced by Poseidon. So ended Saturn and the god of the sea, sophist and sage from no Athenian grove, but cogitation in his watery shades arose um, with locks not oozy and began. So um, he's going to speak straightforwardly. He's not a sophist and sage from Athens, um, but he is going to say what he really thinks. Cogitation in his watery shades arose with locks not oozy, because he hasn't been in the ocean for a long time. Um, the idea of oozy locks, that phrase is from Lycidas, um, very famous phrase from Lycidas. Um, there's Milton all over. Um, as, there's, as there's Shakespeare all over the St. Agnes and some Milton, there's Milton all over the Hyperion poems. So he arose with locks not oozy and began in murmurs, <coughs> which his first endeavoring tongue um, caught infant-like from the far-foamed sands. So he starts speaking, and he sounds at first like he's simply producing the sounds of the ocean. Again, think of this cinematically. And what you would hear is he opens his mouth, and you would hear the ocean in his voice, and it would gradually take form as words. Infant-like. His first endeavoring tongue caught infant-like from the far-foamed sands, because infants babble. Do people know literally what the word infant or infantis means as an adjective? If something is infantis? No, it, it means child now, but it's, liter it's, it's etymology. Does anyone know the etymology of infant? Um, unable to speak. So the word fant in infant comes from a word which means to speak, the same as phonology phonics or um, phonograph, if you know what phonograph is, um, to produce speech. So infant means unspeaking, not yet old enough to speak. So technically, an infant is a human being before it starts saying words, just babbles, but doesn't say words. Um, so Keats knows that. I mean, that's part of his um, use of the word. So. Um, in murmurs, which his first endeavoring tongue caught infant-like from the far-foamed sands. But then he speaks. O ye, whom wrath consumes, who passion stung, writhe at defeat, and nurse your agonies, shut up your senses, stifle up your ears. My voice is not a bellows unto ire. So I'm not going to try to get you angrier. You're already too angry. Yet listen, ye who will, whilst I bring proof, how ye perforce must be content to stoop. And in the proof, much comfort will I give, if you will take that comfort in its truth. So he's saying, it's okay. What he's about to say is, D let's not fight against fate, because that's the wrong thing to do. He goes on, we fall by course of nature's law, not force or thunder 
or of Jove. So we're falling because that's the law of nature. That's the way things are. Great Saturn, thou hast sifted well the atom universe, that is the universe made of atoms, but for this reason that thou art the king and only blind from sheer supremacy, one avenue was shaded from thine eyes through which I wandered to eternal truth. So you, because you were king, you were blind to a truth that only someone who was not king could see. Because you had almighty power, you were blind to the reality that there is no almighty power. Um, but I could see it, he's saying. Now, blind there also is, again, if you think of this poem as an allegory of the young newcomer overthrowing the old king, that old blind king would be whom? You ask the question, so who would it be? If the young newcomer is Keats, who's the old blind king being overthrown? Who's Saturn? Jerome. Sorry? What? No, no, no. I wanted... She said Coleridge. No, I know you didn't. What did you say, Courtney? Wordsworth? Okay. Um, good guess. And, and, and no, it may very well be true that it's Wordsworth. But officially or semi-officially, who's actually blind? Milton. Yeah. Um, a way, it gets very complicated how the romantics thought about each other, but a way to understand what's going on here, which I think isn't too complicated, it's complicated enough and it's also, it's also right, is that they all loved Milton. All six of the romantic poets, as you see, the one thing they agreed on was Milton was, um, except for Shakespeare, um, as great as great could be. Um, they would sometimes be ambivalent about Milton. We saw it in Shelley, who says that there's, um, that in the mind is engendered a pernicious casuistry, which makes us um, weigh Satan's faults with his wrongs and excuse the former because the latter um, exceed all measure. But he's also saying, you know, he calls him the sacred Milton. Um, Milton, the revolutionary poet, um, who, um, who absolutely refused to um, accept tyranny and, um, and um, uh, the assertions and depredations of power. Um, that's why Shelley says he would rather be damned with Plato and Lord Bacon than be in heaven with um, Paley and Malthus and those who believed in um, keeping control of things who didn't believe in freedom. Wordsworth um, has a sonnet, Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. Um, Byron, as we saw, complains that Wordsworth and Southey and Coleridge um, have become toadies. And could you imagine Milton ever doing such a thing? Keats says that the more he reads, the more amazed he is by Paradise Lost, that the one thing, or one of the only things he's sure about in life is how great Paradise Lost is. Blake wrote an epic called Milton, in which Milton, after death, becomes this great spiritual figure in the epic. Um, 
Words, well, yeah, Wordsworth Coleridge um, in Kubla Khan, for example. It's clear who Kubla Khan is. He's Milton. Um, no, I'm exaggerating there. But, I was going to say, I didn't pick up on that. Um, but Milton is everywhere. It's the one thing that all six agree on. Um, the monster says, I should have been thy Adam, but I was thy Satan, whom thou expels from light for no good reason. Um, and um, Frankenstein has that amazing motto or epigraph from Paradise Lost. Did I request the maker um, from clay? Uh, did I request the maker out of darkness to promote me, or from my clay to mold me, man? Um, so Milton was the figure they all agreed on as what greatness meant. Um, because of that, and because Wordsworth was also still alive. And it would outlive all the other romantics. The only one older than Wordsworth was Blake, but they, Wordsworth was never really aware of Blake. Um, Blake is, at the time, he's a, a marginal figure. Um, but the other five great romantic poets, they all know about each other. They, at, some, at one point or another, they will know about each other. Um, I quoted you, Byron, about the death of Keats, to strange the mind, that very fiery particle. Um, should find itself extinguished by an article. Um, he also said of Keats that all his poetry was self-frigging. Um, uh, he didn't like what he thought. He basically thought Keats was um, Keats's poetry was masturbatory. All he was doing was imagining sensual richness and really getting into it. Um, Byron was kind of mean about Keats, but they knew each other um, and they all loved Milton. What that means then is that for the romantics, again with Blake as the exception, but for the younger romantics, for everyone younger than Wordsworth, they could, when they were wanted to attack Wordsworth, they could instead attack Milton. Even though they loved Milton, they could also identify Wordsworth with Milton. And when they said that there were things wrong with Milton despite his greatness, what they were really saying was that there were things wrong with Wordsworth despite his greatness. A way to put this, which, which um, might make it make more sense, is that Wordsworth valued the wrong things in Milton. And so if you attack Milton for some of what he says, generally what Milton will be attacked for is what Wordsworth likes in Milton. Um, but it's just possible when a young poet is saying, Milton is great, but now it's my turn. What he really means is, Wordsworth is great, but now it's my turn. And so I think that's my way of saying, you're both right, um, which is good. So. Um, Here's Oceanus who's saying that's what happens. The new replaces the old. Um, yet listen ye who will whilst I bring proof how ye perforce must be contempt to stoop and in the proof much comfort will I give if ye will take that comfort in its truth. We fall by course of nature's law not force of thunder or of Jove. Great Saturn thou hast sifted well the Adam universe but for this reason that thou art the king and only blind from sheer supremacy. One avenue is shaded from thine eyes. 
through which I wander to eternal truth. And first, as thou wast not the first of powers, so art thou not the last. So again, addressed to Milton. Milton isn't the first great poet. There was Homer, there was Virgil, there was Shakespeare, and he's not the last great poet. And even more so addressed to Wordsworth, you're not the first great poet. There was Milton, and you're not the last. So at first, as thou was not the first of powers, so art thou not the last? It cannot be. Thou art not the beginning nor the end. From chaos and parental darkness came light, the first fruits of that intestine broil, that sudden, that sullen ferment, ferment, which for wondrous ends was ripening in itself. So, first, out of chaos and, and parental darkness, and the very fact that chaos is a place, as in Milton, of constant strife, a new thing is born, light. Again, he's thinking of Paradise Lost. Um, the way light, at the beginning of book three, is one from the void and formless infinite. Um, that is from chaos. So out of that came light. Hey. Um, that sullen ferment, out of that sullen ferment came light, which for wondrous ends was ripening in itself. The ripe hour came, and with it light, and light engendering upon its own producer, forthwith touched the whole enormous matter into life. So first there was chaos, then light came out of it. You know, this could actually be a pretty good description of modern physics. There's a big bang, there was light. The light affected the matter out of which it came, or the original substance out of which it came. That engendered life. Upon that very hour, our parentage the heavens and the earth were manifest. Then thou, firstborn, and we, the giant race, found ourselves ruling new and beauteous realms. So there we were. First chaos, then light, then life, then heaven and earth, then us. And we found ourselves the way you would find night day, ruling new and beauteous realms. Now comes the pain of truth. We're looking at Hyperion, um, book two, line 201. Now comes the pain of truth, to whom tis pain, that is, if it is pain, O oh, folly, for to bear all naked truths and to envisage circumstance all calm, that is the top of sovereignty. Shouldn't be pain. If you can look at how things are and bear them calmly, all calm, then you're sovereign over yourself. Mark well as heaven and earth are fairer, fairer far than chaos and blank darkness, though once chiefs. And as we show beyond that heaven and earth in form and shape compact and beautiful, in will and in will, in action free, companionship and thousand other signs of purer life. So just as we're more beautiful than chaos. And here he's quoting Hamlet. 
do people recognize that? What in Hamlet? What a piece of work is man? How infinite in faculty? Um, yeah. Um, so on our heels, a fresh perfection treads. So there's something more perfect than us coming after us. So on our heels, a fresh perfection treads, a power more strong in beauty, born of us and fated to excel us as we pass in glory that old darkness. Nor are we thereby more conquered than by us the rule of shapeless chaos. So something more beautiful is coming. But that doesn't put us down. That's a great thing. The world is becoming more and more beautiful. Say, doth the dull soil quarrel with the proud forest it hath fed? and feedeth still more comely than itself. Can it deny the chiefdom of green groves? Or shall the tree be envious of the dove because it cooeth and hath snowy wings to wander wherewithal and find its joys? We are such forest trees, and our fair boughs have bred forth not pale solitary doves, but eagles golden feathered who tower above us in their beauty and must reign in right thereof. For tis the eternal law that first in beauty should be first in might. So... We're like chaos and night, or like the soil out of which we grew like trees, and on our branches are golden eagles. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then he has this little law, first in beauty, should be first in might. Um, you can think of, if you know it, if not, we'll get to it on Tuesday maybe, the Ode on a Grecian Urn, which ends, anyone remember what it is that the urn says to all? Thou still remains a friend to man to whom thou sayest, beauty is nice, but no. Beauty is truth. Truth, yeah. truth beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Um, <coughs> so, but might here is meaning something like that. Might is the might of reality, the might of truth. Um, so, so says Oceanus. And then... Climene, or Climene comes in, and she says at line 251 now, O Father, I am here the simplest voice, <coughs> and all my knowledge is that joy is gone, and this thing woe crept in among our hearts, it remained forever as I fear. I would not bode of evil if I thought so weak a creature could turn off the help which by just right should come of mighty gods. Yet let me tell my sorrow, let me tell of what I heard and how it made me weep, and know that we had parted from all hope. I stood upon a shore, a pleasant shore, where a sweet clime was breathed from a land of fragrance, quietness, and trees and flowers, full of calm joy it was, as I have grief, too full of joy and soft, delicious warm, warmth, so that I felt a movement in my heart to chide and reproach that solitude with songs of misery, music of our woes, and sat me down and took a mouthed shell and murmured into it and made melody, oh, melody, no more. For while I sang, and with poor skill let pass into the breeze the dull shells echo from a bowery strand just opposite, an island of the sea, there came enchantment 
with a shifting wind that did both drown and keep alive my ears, I threw my shell away upon the sand and away filled it as my sense was filled with that new blissful golden melody. A living death was in each gush of sounds, each family of rapturous hurried notes that fell one after one, yet all at once like pearl beads dropping sudden from their string and then another, then another strain, each like a dove leaving its olive perch with music winged instead of silent plumes to hover around my head and make me sick of joy and grief at once. So the richest, most beautiful kind of song or of poetry. Grief overcame, and I was stopping up my frantic ears when past all hindrance of my trembling hands, a voice came sweeter, sweeter than all tune, and still it cried, Apollo, young Apollo, the morning bright Apollo, young Apollo. I fled, it followed me and cried, Apollo, O father and O brethren, had ye felt those pains of mine, O Saturn, hadst thou felt, ye would not call this too indulgent tongue presumptuous in thus venturing to be heard. So she hears the sound, the music of Apollo, rich because melancholy and melancholy because rich, and the fall of the Titans and the song and poem of their fall and of their failure is the most beautiful thing in the world. That's what she's saying. And that's the birth of poetry and the coming into power of the god of poetry. And that's what Keats is describing here. A sensuality, poetry achieving a sensuality and a richness and a melancholy now as the young Apollo enters into the scene that supersedes the, the, the Titans. And that's what the poem is about. So the pure description is loading, again to quote what I said on, on what I quoted Keith saying on Tuesday, loading every rift with ore. Again, you might have noticed the word load in this poem. Um, okay, have a good weekend. See you Tuesday. Um, I didn't look at the photo yet, but it's okay if I post it, right? All right, sure, yeah, no, reading. And anything to get people to see how good it is to just hang out and read poetry. Good. All right. Have a good weekend, you guys. You okay?